All right. We're gonna do it the scan away. I'm gonna suck your brain dry. And yes, we are back. This time live from New York and live from South Korea. This is the Mars Magazine podcast. My name is Adario Strange here with Nick Song. And you uh you're joining us from Tokyo right now, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm in Tokyo right now. So you are on like a little mini tour or re I guess recon. You've you we both used to live in Japan and you uh y- your family is from from Korea and you South Korea and you were i guess doing some business over there so you spent some time in south korea and japan mm-hmm. uh how are things over there uh rainy it's very rainy and humid and disgusting but uh besides of the i mean in terms of weather but besides that it's it's been good it's been a great trip to kind of reconnect with uh, asia and get a look see at what's going on here Right. So we decided um, that it might be a good idea to take this opportunity to because we also we we always kind of like inadvertently veer into Japan talk because Vic and I both lived in Japan. So we love talking about Japan, but we've been trying to be good about that and not really bring that up, you know, at every single opportunity. But since Vic is actually in Japan and was in Korea, we decided um well, this episode, we'll actually focus on Asia and specifically South Korea. Uh, later in the episode, we're going to talk about the new zombie apocalypse film uh, from South Korea, Train to Busan. Um, but before that, we have another, well, a few uh, South Korea-oriented topics to dive into. I think, first of all, maybe we just go right into the Samsung uh, Note 7 uh, mm-hmm. situation. So, as listeners out there might know, the Samsung Note 7 um, was presented, I guess, about a month ago. It got amazing reviews. Um, I was hearing people saying that this phone was better than the iPhone. This is the best phone on the planet. I mean, and I handled the phone. It was, it's a beautiful phone. It looks great. I haven't lived with it, but I, you know, I toyed with it a little bit and it's, it's a really nice looking and, and the operating system is nice and everything. But then they started exploding. And what <laughs> happened was, yeah, so Samsung kind of like was, I think, a little slow to respond. And apparently the explosions were as a result of the batteries, defective batteries. And so they began to issue, uh, Samsung, that is, began to issue its own recall. And U.S. government officials um, actually kind of, you know, criticized that move because they said they didn't go, Samsung didn't go through the proper channels. So as of yesterday, uh, Thursday, today's Friday, we're recording this on a Friday, the CPSC, the Consumer Product Safety Commission, has issued an official recall notice for Samsung Galaxy Note 7 devices, smartphones. And so, the, you know, the company has kind of like this trade-in program where you can kind of get a replacement and, you know, the, but the, here's the problem. You know, a lot of people aren't tech geeks and aren't on top of every single update that comes out. And so a lot of people out there maybe have heard whispers about this, but they don't know necessarily that they have kind of like, uh, I'm not, I shouldn't say ticking, you know what, but you know, they have a problem in their pocket. And so one solution that uh, Samsung has come up with is they're going to push out a software update 
that will actually limit the battery's charge to, I think, about 60 percent to, you know, as a means to kind of force like for, for those who don't who aren't aware or who don't, you know, go and trade it in. You know, this is kind of a means to force people to not, you know, be in a dangerous situation. So I'm curious. So you're out there. You're at the home base, the mothership, you know, <laughs> South Korea, Samsung Inc. You might as well call South South Korea Samsung, in my opinion. I mean, that's how dominant the company is in South Korea. I mean, have you heard anything locally? Are people reacting? Yeah. So I had a gigantic family get together and just like this full disclosure, there are people in my family who are employed by Samsung. So, you know, it was just kind of, uh, kind of a cool, like, Hey, so what, what's up with the Samsung note seven exploding? And, you know, the reaction was kind of interesting because they're like, Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, it's not that bad of a problem. Like it's a problem, but it won't be, you know, we'll, we'll fix it. It'll be fine. And, you know, to, to what you said about Samsung basically owning Korea. Yeah. It's, 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 um, a couple of years ago, uh, when you land in Incheon airport, which is, I would say it's the main airport in South Korea. Uh, there, there's another one, but in Seoul at least, but the Incheon airport, when you're going through, uh, immigration, there would be these large LED screens with the Samsung logo uh, advertising the Galaxy uh, S whatever that was out at the time. So as soon as you land, it's like, first thing, like these ads are no longer there. But for a long time, every single time I used to go to Korea, you would land and the Samsung ads would pop up. And, you know, by and large, most people in South Korea, this is the phone that they use because for the longest time you couldn't get an iPhone in South Korea as Samsung had blocked the sale there. So do, do you wait, no do you know when the iPhone came to South Korea? Not that long ago. It used to be I want to say like 3 or 4 years ago, maybe no, not 3 or 4 years ago, like maybe 5 or 6 years ago. You would go to South Korea and you would have if you wanted Apple products, you'd have to go to an Apple reseller and they would have like some Apple but slightly bootleg logo that so you could know you could get it there and now you can get the iPhone, but it's definitely not the smartphone of choice for many South Koreans. Uh, my grandpa just turned 100, and that's one of the reasons why I went to South Korea. And our entire family was there, friends of family were there, and there were only two people with an iPhone. Um, this, I'm saying this is about a room full of 35 people. There was only about two people with an iPhone, and these two people, one of my, uh, myself included, were people who lived in America who had come to, you know, celebrate this, this gathering. So wow. in general, people are massive Android users here in South Korea. So what's number two after Samsung uh, in terms of smartphones? I want to say LG. Which uh, is, you're right, right. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is, you know, the other big Korean, like, it's, it's Samsung's little brother, basically. Right. I love LG, actually. I prefer LG. I don't know. Well, uh, what, uh, what a lot of people don't know is that LG stands for life's good. So I guess it's right, good right. if you have LG. <laughs> yeah, not exploding on you. So, but I mean, did you hear any, did you catch any chatter or was there any kind of like public, you know, angst? There was some on the news. So we had the Korean news going on in, in the background. They're like, oh, Samsung, uh, the, L, uh, the Note 7, it's exploding overseas. And, you know, some Americans seemed a little angry about it. And moving on to the next. <laughs> like, <laughs> really? So, I mean, so it's really just 
so no, so it's no biggie, basically. Well, it's it's it, people know, and it's a biggie, and they know it's a problem. It's just, you know, I feel like there was a lot of downplaying of it for for you know uh, reasons. Like I think the stock price dropped quite a bit, and it's just you know. It is the main company. It's Samsung in Korea is just like if you could combine Apple and Microsoft together, that's kind right. of the the cultural and um, not not just cultural, but just everything impact of it. Like the the I think some of the main hospitals in uh, South Korea are owned by Samsung. Like Samsung, it's not just an electronics company here, and I'm uh, not here well because I'm in Tokyo, but. In Korea, Samsung is not just an electronics company. It's a lifestyle company. It's a business, like regular business company. It's an everything company. And so, I mean, so on some level, it's kind of like a matter of national pride, right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It is a matter of national pride that, um, you know, a lot of Koreans, if you talk to them, they feel very proud that Samsung is so big across the world, you know, um, that they can sponsor like Chelsea Football Club in in uh, England and have that international level of prestige. Uh, so when they fail on an epic level like this, you know, there there's an acknowledgement that wrong has been done, but there's also just like very stubborn pride to kind of right. gloss that over. So you have an iPhone, but you don't also have a Samsung phone? I mean, have you touched this thing? Have you... I've not touched the Note 7, but I have... You know, touched the the other Samsung Galaxy S seven, S six, blah blah blah, Edge, all all of the different iterations. Um, like I said, most of my family is on they're on Samsung phones. They're not really. It's really interesting because they're they're on Samsung phones, but they have iPads. What? Wait, how's that? I don't get. Wait, because I know Samsung has. I have a Samsung tablet at my office. I mean, so what what's going on there? I don't know. I don't know if it's just my particular family, but um, they're they're all on the iPads, so that because FaceTime is a thing. But they're by and large on Android phones, like Android Samsung phones. So it, it's bizarre because the Samsung phones are quite large. Like they're large in the sense that the iPhone Seven or the iPhone Six Plus and the Seven Plus are much larger than the you know the vanilla. Six and seven. Well, that was my next question. I mean, so so the the emergence of these phablet style Apple uh, like iPhones hasn't put a dent in the market in Korea. I mean, it's still kind of like this like you know seldom used device. Like, in I mean, you, you're not seeing like a lot of iPhone six pluses out there. Well, you know, there is a level of like sexy like glamour associated with the iPhones. Um, right. You know, there are people who definitely want them. They're just very expensive compared, at least in, in like the Korean mindset. Like the actuality is I think the prices are not too far apart, but it's just like the ubiquity of Samsung. And like, if you look at Korean dramas, that's another place where you can kind of look to see what tech people are using in general. Like you will see that they're mostly on Samsung phones or an LG phone or, you know, just you don't really see iPhones in Korean media. And so, I mean, and so is some of this, you know, what you see the devices on the dramas, is that because these companies are sponsoring oh, these yeah. shows oh, or yeah. is it just a culture, pure culture? Um, I believe that I'm pretty sure that Samsung has its fingers in the production companies as well. I mean, they're right. in the hospitals. 
they're just they're everywhere. Like anywhere a company can be, Samsung is there. Alternate question. If I show up in South Korea or okay, forget me, I'm a foreigner. So let's just say a South Korean person, a young South Korean person is walking around with the new, you know, iPhone seven plus. Are they considered somehow uncool? I mean, like what like what's the the cultural capital associated with the iPhone at this point? You know, it's really funny because every single time I talk to my cousins who are around my age and I whip out my iPhone, they're just like, oh, it's iPhone. You know, so what's the iPhone like? I mean, don't you want a bigger screen? Like, look at the team. Let me pull out my Samsung phone. See, I like I like the bigger screen on this. Oh, yeah, I like, I I just feel a lot more comfortable with the Android than I do with the, the iPhone. And I was just like, are, are, is that really how you feel or you've been condi- conditioned to feel this way? But there is like a natural curiosity. You're not going to be treated like a leper or something like that. There Okay, so it's not uncool. It's not uncool and there and like I said before you could legally get the iPhone in South Korea there were like these not back alley shops but slightly not official off-brand shops that would, you know, help you kind of unlock an iPhone so that you could use it in South Korea or if you wanted to buy one even though there was no like official channel to buy one there you could get it at like these Apple-esque, not an Apple store, but an Apple-esque store. And, you know, so we're actually speaking on an interesting day because today was the day, uh, at least here in the U.S., that the iPhone 7 and 7 Plus was made available at retail to the public. And what's interesting is I was kind of just, you know, checking the news sites, you know, looking around, and apparently uh, the lines are down significantly. And, you know, to me, this makes sense. I mean, I feel like... Okay, maybe the first, second, third, even the fourth iPhone. This is magical stuff. We are now, what is this like? We're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of the iPhone. Why at this point would you still wait, you know, overnight online if you're unless you're a reseller, you know, mm-hmm. one of these shady, you know, you know, trying to sell it on the black market, gray market or whatever. I you know, I don't see why you rush to get this when you know, okay, maybe for the first week or two Supplies will be limited, but then afterward, you know, you just wait. I mean, yeah, if you're that whatever, you probably, you know, if you're that excited, you probably have at best or at, I mean, at worst, you have like maybe a five, five uh, S iPhone five S. I just, I, you know, so the lines being down, you know, in terms of numbers makes sense to me on a logic scale or logic, you know, from a logic perspective. However, I think some people are taking this as like, oh, wait. Is Apple beginning to lose its mojo? Yeah, but, you know, you keep your phones longer than you used to. You're locked into, I mean, some people are locked into two-year contracts, and then they get a free upgrade anyway. On top of that, you know, I think part of it, maybe if people aren't rushing out to tent, you know, with their tents and their their barbecue material to go camping in front of of an Apple store, is partially the headphone jack conundrum or uh, controversy and the AirPods, which I think uh, personally looks stupid. <laughs> you, know? you know, so the one thing I haven't seen that, like, the more I look at these things, okay, I'm, I'm so 50-50 on this because from a technology standpoint, I'm beginning to come over and think of them as, okay, wait a minute, maybe these are cool wearables that will help us to use things like Siri and get us used to having kind of like, you know, basically like her, mm-hmm. like the movie her, um, where you just basically have this earpiece, you know, 
you know, ever-present earpiece and you walk around and you kind of use it to com- communicate with your computer and the cloud. But visually, every time I see the AirPods, it looks like a broken Q-tip hanging out of your ear, <laughs> which is disgusting. I don't know. That, that's just, I can't, for some reason, that's what I see whenever I look at it. I mean, they're coming out in October, so we shouldn't, I mean, unless it's a reviewer, uh, you shouldn't see them on the streets yet. Yeah, I mean, just for myself, you know, as a reporter writing about it, there's a ton of interest in these things. There are already, there's like a an accessories market designed to hook the two AirPods together so you don't lose them, which to me is a big deal because these things are $160. $160. Yeah, and it's then like, you can pay for another accessory so that you don't lose your $160. It's just a money yeah. suck. It's such a, it's such a, you know, I, I'm not one of the people who hate Apple for, you know, their blatant cash grabs. I, I don't hate them for it. Um, but that, you know, with the lightning dongles and it's just like if Apple's all about sleek design, nothing about this is sleek because you're just going to yeah. have to, at least for the short term period, have to, you know, come up with these MacGyvered solutions to, you know, marry your old tech with your new tech. And it's just it's just ugh. I'm on the fence with that, too, because on one side, I'm kind of like, OK, if I take my old headphones and use the adapter that comes with the new iPhone. They have like, a, thankfully, they include an adapter that goes from um, lightning to uh, to the stereo port. Okay, but then, you know, am I going to jog around with this heavy adapter thing hanging off my earphones? I mean, no, probably not. So they're basically forcing you to use Apple earphones, which... If you know, there's a if you go to Amazon, there are these rubber grips that people use and they, they, they buy and they put them on the ear earbuds to keep them from slipping out of the ear. And I keep hearing people's like, well, well, you know, that's just a few people that, you know, where it slips out of the ear. If you look on the Amazon page for this product, there's like, you know, hundreds of reviews from people saying, oh, this is a godsend. Thank you, you know, for these uh, rubber grips. So this is clearly a problem. They haven't saw Apple hasn't solved the problem. And now they're forcing people to use the, the earphones and the slippery, you know, the fallout that, by the way, so. Man, this is just I could this is like a rabbit hole. We're not even talking about Samsung anymore, but I'm sorry. <laughs> this is like big. So, Tim Cook goes on Good Morning America uh, earlier this week and the host grilled him about, you know, okay, well what if, what if we lose these AirPods, you know, like, you know, because they're basically formed, they're designed exactly like the EarPods, the slippery earbud uh section. And, you know, basically he First, he goes into the spiel mode, talking about the carrying case, which has magnetic, you know, you know, placeholders for the thing. And then he says, well, really, the reason why they would always fall out, the ear pods, that is, is because there was a cord attached to them. And so the cord pr- was would give weight to the ear pods and that would pull them out. Mm-hmm. OK, I don't know about you, but most headphone cords that I have don't weigh very much. OK, um, I don't find myself yanking on them, you know, like an insane person. So I, that excuse just doesn't hold water for me. I mean, it kind of makes sense on some level. I do get the logic of it. But when I really sit back and think about it, I no, I mean, I I can't imagine having these AirPods and them not falling out of my ear within the first 24 hours. Yeah, know? no, I, I actually took the. Like, as it became clear that the rumors of the head headphone jack was, you know, that it was actually disappearing and it wasn't just a rumor anymore, 
Uh, I took that as an opportunity to bite the bullet and buy myself uh, a pair of Bluetooth exercise headphones. I was looking for them anyway. But, you know, the, the sound quality over Bluetooth is not the greatest. Exactly. So it's, exactly. I, it's yeah. gotten a lot better. But it's not, you know, if I, if I have, um, I've got a great pair. Uh, I, I like them a lot, especially for exercise. But if I got a song that's heavy on the bass, you know, for audiophiles who, you know, I feel like Apple loves to appeal to the aficionados and the connoisseurs of, of things. They, they, they want to appeal to people who love art, who love design, who love sound, who love like the extreme aesthetic. Like the iPhone is all about aesthetic. Um, so to just really just flip the bird at audiophiles. Are you getting a new iPhone? I am. I am. It's what's, why what's, I, what is your pleasure? Um, I'm probably going to get the 7. Um, my hands are too small for the 7 Plus. And <laughs> as, as you know, Adario, I am the biggest klutz on the planet. If I get the 7 Plus, I'm going to drop it. It's going to be a problem. <laughs> So um, I've already dropped my uh, iPhone 6 into the New York subway tracks. <laughs> I don't need to be dropping the 7. So I don't know. I, I'm an impulse buyer. I'll have to see it in the store and make my decision then. But, I mean, the Samsung thing for Apple, it couldn't have come at a better time because they're dealing with the whole $14 billion tax issue mm -hmm. uh, in Ireland. And so that was bad press. And so then this this Samsung thing happens just days before the release of the iPhone 7. So this is a, you know, I mean, the, the wars between Samsung and Apple continue, but this is a pretty good week, pretty good day for Apple. You, you've been in Tokyo, in Japan for a bit after your Korea stint. I mean, did you see anything in terms of technology just like on the streets, in the neighborhoods that we both know, like anything happening? Like, you know, it's been a few years since I've been there. So I'm curious, like, is anything going on out there? Like, yeah. So, um, you know. I, I think you know this term, Adario Kaizen, uh, continual improvement. It's it's like a philosophy that's very deep in Japan. So, if you if if you've lived in Japan before, if you've been there before, and you came to visit now, you wouldn't necessarily see like huge things hitting you over the head. Things that have changed, but there are like tons of tiny incremental changes. Uh, there's a lot more things that you can do with NFC now. You can just pay with your train card for not only vending machines, but also arcade games, everything. Like, they're ju they just seem to be expanding that. I was on the subway, and, you know, they give you a bunch of, like, you know, the train is coming, blah, 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 spiel. And they've added on top of that a warning saying, you know, if you're on your smartphone, please don't use it when you're getting on and off the train, and especially not games. And um, when I was back here in November, that was not that was not on the trains. And the only thing that I can think of that's been different between now and then has been the release of Pokemon Go and all the accidents wow. that Pokemon Go causes. So I was actually asking around a bunch of my friends and they were just like, oh, yeah, that's a very new announcement. I think it happened around the time, like maybe a little before Pokemon Go or just like an increased number of people just hurting themselves because they're just on their phones all the time so that's that's actually like a, a kind of an announcement that i hear with regular frequency in in japan hmm. and then um i went to odaiba and they actually have a vr arcade there and that was really cool to to just go check out 
No, wait, was this called, what's the name of it? Is it called a VR arcade? No, so the name is like this really crazy Japanese name. It's called VR Zone Project I Can. Okay, see, that's why I asked you. I wanted to hear what, because they always come up with some weird, awesome name that's like English, but not quite right. So say it again. What's it again? VR Zone Project I Can. That's amazing. Okay. Yeah. So, so what would they have in there? So um, this is actually a virtual reality kind. It's like, it's a, it's about a 5,000 square foot um area inside a shopping mall in Odaiba and it's run by Bandai Namco. It's kind of like a kind of you know like when you do a clinical study, it's kind of like a VR test study for an arcade. And um you have to reserve in advance. It costs if you want to do all the games in there, it costs about 5000 yen or about 50 bucks. You go and you reserve a spot online and then they give you 90 minutes to play or to play as many of the six six or seven VR games that they have there. And it's all using HTC Vive uh, headsets. Oh, wow. That's high end. Okay. So they got the best. Yeah. And so I only got to do three of the games that were there because as with many things in Japan, there's a line and I wanted to, the ones that I wanted to do seemed to be the most popular games there. Um, there was some coverage in the States about this. That's how I found out about it before I came. Um, it opened in April, and I think it'll go on until about mid-October. So if you're going to Asia or Japan anytime soon, you might want to reserve a spot. They, it was completely sold out. When I went for the day that I went, I got the last spot for my day. And I chatted briefly with some of the attendants there, and they were just like, oh, what did you like about it? Because, you know, I could speak in Japanese, and I was just chatting them up a bit. Well, what, what, what games did you play? So one of the games I've played was called, I think, Takajo Kyofu Show. And this is a game where it simulates extreme fear of heights. So you get, you put on the, the goggles, you go into a VR elevator, and it takes you up 200 meters into the air into a skyscraper. There's a plank that goes out, and at the end of the plank, there's a little kitty cat. And you basically have to go <laughs> on this game plank, you know, like the, the planks that, the, that they make you walk in all the pirate movies before you jump to your death. So you're basically walking right, right. this this plank, and you have to save this ungrateful little kitty cat who like keeps running away from <laughs> you, like it wants to commit suicide. <laughs> and and it's insane because um, you know you're you've got the the goggles on, but they're creating this immersive experience. And once you take the when when the goggles are off, you're just basically in this bare room. There's just like these tarpy curtains around. It looks kind of you know, it looks kind of janky. And there's just like a plank. So wait, wait, wait. So wait. So in real life, you're led into a, a bare room. Mm -hmm. You're not just in like a crowded, like, because when you said arcade, I was thinking that you had to put on the goggles while a bunch of people were crowded around you. So you actually get to go into a, an empty room. Yeah, that's why you have to reserve because they can only service a certain number of people at a given time. And so you go into this little room and you're on a plank. This plank moves. It's It's got some haptic stuff going on, depending on your weight. So it mimics the sense that you're not on a stable surface. So so hold on. So you're you're on an actual plank in this room. Yes, you're on in your. And how big is the room? The room is a cup. It's 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 a big room. It's it it's a big enough room that you could have two of the games going on at the same time. Okay, so maybe like ten by twenty feet yeah, or something. Yeah, some, like something like that. Okay. And there's fans blowing on you. 
So it mimics oh, the wow. sense that you're actually up there. Um, you can you can Google it uh, or just search it online, and you can find videos of people playing this game, and you'll see a bunch of Japanese girls just screaming and losing their minds. Um, now, is there like a short name? Because you gave kind of like a long Japanese name. Is there like a, a, a nickname for it or something? Uh, for the game, no. But if you just uh, search for VR Zone Project, I can. There there are videos that okay. pop up, especially of this uh, rescue the cat game that I was playing. And <laughs> The and ungrateful cat. It's an ungrateful cat because it jumps away from you at one point, and you're like, "Why are you doing that?" And then the plank in the game breaks, so you're just like, "Oh my god, oh my god!" And um, you know, uh, the other game I played was like Escape from the Mental Hospital. Like it's like Escape from a Mental Hospital. You're um, you're a patient in a wheelchair, and it's a horror game, and people are you know, come in to kill you, but you're stuck in a wheelchair and you're trying to go as fast <laughs> as you can. Uh, full disclosure, I got my head chopped off and that was so <laughs> freaky. <laughs> so wait, in the, in, so in this one, do they put you in an actual wheelchair in the room? Um, they put you in an actual chair um, and they okay. put you in a... But couple, not a wheelchair though. Not, not a wheelchair, but you're in a chair. Okay. Um, it's kind of one of those wheelchairs where it's got a hand control for movement. Um, oh, right, and they have okay. fans... They have fans on your face to mimic, um, <laughs> like, the airflow and that sort of thing. And just to be clear, so the airflow from the fans, are they programmed somehow to change direction with what's happening in the VR yes. experience? Yes, definitely for oh the Rescue God, the that's Cat. that's amazing. Like, the Rescue the Cat game. Um, so another really interesting thing was that before you're even let in, all the people who are reserved for a certain time period, before you're let in, you're given about a five-minute spiel about all the health effects that you can't do if you're going to do VR. They're like pregnant women, that's a no. Uh, if you have a weak heart, that's a no. If you have motion sickness, uh, a propensity towards that, that's a no. If you're wearing open-toed shoes, that's a no. This is, don't do this, don't do that, blah, blah, blah. So there's like a five-minute long medical spiel in Japanese that they give you. And I was just like, holy shit. And before the cat game, this very cheery Japanese guy comes up to me and she's like, are you afraid of heights? I was like, yes, but no, because I want to play this game. <laughs> um, right. He's like, um, and how, how is, how is like, you know, I, how are your legs? Are your legs strong? Are you okay? <laughs> you know, I'm just doing a really are bad, legs strong? I'm just doing a really bad um, direct translation of what he was saying. And I was like, yeah, my, my legs are pretty good, but I got to say, when I was in that experience trying to save this cat from, you know, 200 meters, this ungrateful little, this little, <laughs> this little, this little shit, that's the only way I can explain this guy, uh, this little cat, I got vertigo. I got an intense, intense sense of oh, wow. vertigo. It really felt, because um, the, the, the plank was creaky, I could hear the noise of the, the plank creaking, and it, it's, it's not like a straight plank. It's not like you're just walking on a stable straight plank. This goes back and forth depending on how you distribute your weight. Um, and because of the way the fans were blowing on me and I was looking around, it was like I was in this this building on the top of Shinjuku looking down and going, oh shit, I'm about to die. It's insane. Is that where the VR environment was in Shinjuku? No, it's in Odaiba. Like, I mean, the, the, the virtual environment, yes. I mean. Yes, the virtual environment looked like it was in a Shinjuku-esque area. So if you can imagine those those tall skyscrapers, you're on top of one of yeah. them trying to save this stupid cat. <laughs> wow. 
And, um, you know, they actually have a furry little cat doll at the end that you pick up. <laughs> so, <laughs> wait, so wait. So if you actually get to the cat, your hand closes around some furry thing? Yes, yes. Um, so, oh, like, you amazing. know, there's a little stuffed that's cat amazing. at the end of it that you can pick up. <laughs> and then you have to... So the game is that you have to get to the cat without falling off oh, yeah. uh, off of the plank. Oh, and, you know puking up your guts because awesome. you're 200, gut, 200 meters up in the air and then you have to pick up the cat and then the plank breaks <laughs> the plank breaks in half and so you have a even smaller plank that you have to get back to the cat to safety and then go down the virtual elevator and get the cat to, to the to the first floor and I shit you not the entire time in my head I was like this isn't real this isn't real you can get this cat you can get this mother freaking cat no no cat don't you run oh, away wow. from me and um there was this group of Japanese girls and you know this is a really interesting thing the group that I was with it was people of all ages it was you know Japanese girls um young women in like frilly dresses who you might not think of as like quote-unquote typical gamer types they were elderly uh, people, there were people like me, people who came together, people who were on dates. So it was like a real mix of, of people going to try this out. And, you know, the girls next to me, they were just screaming their heads off. It was really funny. <laughs> so it kind of added to that atmosphere. Um, with the mental hospital wheelchair escape game, um, there were girls and guys, guys too, screaming their heads off in fear. Uh, I was also one of the people screaming because that was scary. Um, and then the last game I got to try was I got to pilot a mecha, like a Gundam-esque thing. And this game was called Argyle Shift. I don't know what Argyle has to do with mecha. I it just sounds awesome. I don't care what that means. Argyle <laughs> Shift sounds amazing. Yes. Yeah, and uh, you have um, – in. You, so you're, you're in the HTC Vive, uh, you're in that experience, and uh, you have a little Cortana-esque AI guiding you. She's just saying stuff <laughs> like, oh, master... You'll be the great at you'll be the greatest at piloting this thing. So you're in you're in a mecha. You get to drop in the mecha, and when you're sitting in the mecha in this particular game, there is like hydraulic chairs that mimic what it would be like oh, to be in it. Man, that sounds amazing. So it was really wow. cool, and the game cut off after a certain point, and it said to be continued. So I do think that Bandai Namco is basically developing these VR games and they're basically testing them out on the public. Um, people who go to this stuff and they actually, I didn't get to do this because they weren't running it on the day that I went, but they have a Gundam experience for this VR um, arcade testing thing that they're doing. Um, you get to ride on the shoulder of a Gundam while it's battling something. And, ah, that seemed pretty cool, but I didn't get a chance to, to try it out. I would really love to. Well, this is interesting because I've talked to a number of VR companies and CEOs and developers here in the States. And that's been my, like, I didn't know about this thing that you're talking about in Japan. But the thing I kept saying to them, I said, you know, don't you think there's an opportunity here for VR arcades? And like almost to a person, they all shot the idea down. No, like logistically, it's too complicated and probably people won't be interested for this or that reason and just all these reasons. 
And I don't know. I thought, like, I was always thinking, well, you know, sure, I'd be willing to pay between 20, 30, maybe even 50 bucks to go, you know, I don't have to set up my own HTC Vive. I don't have to buy the PC. I don't have to do all this stuff. I don't have to look for the software. I just go into this facility, pay my 50 bucks, and boom, and I start having the experience. And whether it's with a date or by myself or with friends, you know, just a group of buddies. I mean, that seems logical. And, you know, the people I talk to here, you know, at, I'm not going to name companies because, you know, th- they may have to, you know, reverse course, you know, as, as this gets popular in Asia. But um, some pretty big companies have said, nah, we don't think that would work. So you're saying based on at least uh, what you've seen in Japan, this is a, a hit waiting to happen. It's, it's a hit. It's It was popular. I didn't realize that I would have to to reserve. I thought I could just show up and go. At first, and then when I went to the website to find more information, they were like, you can't go unless you reserve it. And I freaked out a bit, actually, thinking that I wasn't going to be able to go. But like I said, I managed to get the last spot for my day that I was going to go. And it was full. It was full up full. And people were lining up for the, especially the cat, rescue the cat. That seemed to be the most popular game there. Um, so, I mean, so in general, you think VR uh, as a commercial enterprise, maybe not for the home, but as a commercial enterprise, is this telling you from what you've seen that this is something that might translate to the States? I think so. And, you know, Asia is just so good at creating immersive entertainment experiences. Um, you know, I played another game. Uh, it wasn't VR. I played another game at Joy Palace in Odaiba. It was a Transformers game where you get into a pod and you play as Bumblebee helping Optimus Prime, and I shit you not, this 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 pod goes 360 degrees. It's like a mini pod roller coaster that you get to play, and mimics flying through buildings and all that stuff. It is so much fun. I'm not a huge <laughs> I'm not a huge gamer. I enjoy games. I enjoyed arcades, but I'm not particularly good at gaming. I don't spend a whole lot of money to do it. I would drop down so much money to play VR arcades because it's fun. You have great facilities, um, and I mean, part of it is Japan because they give you eye masks for the HTC Vive, so you don't have to worry about other people's face germs when you're playing with you know different. Um, Masks uh, or VR face germs. <laughs> yeah, so you face germs. Face germs. You don't have to worry about that. Uh, they wipe down the sets after everyone plays it. Extremely clean, uh, wonderful experience. I loved the hydraulic chair when I was playing with the uh, uh, playing the Mecha game Argyle Shift. You know, all in all, I don't have to keep it at home. I don't have to shell out hundreds upon hundreds of dollars. I'm all for VR arcades. I don't know what those companies are talking about. After having done it, it's amazing. Okay, and then just to wrap up, uh, I mean, I'm curious, now that you've done it, you're coming back to the States. We don't have VR arcades yet. Uh, you and I are going to talk. I have some VC people that maybe we're going to meet next week. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, so are you not inspired to buy your own HTC Vive now, just for your own home use after those experiences? Well, I would have to buy a rig, uh, a, a PC that would be able to handle, like, because you don't, the last thing you want is, um, last thing you want is choppy frame rates, because that's just going to take you right out of the experience. So I would have to not only shell out for the, for the headset, I would have to shell out for a computer that would be able to play it. So, you know, the cost to entry is really high, which is why I think the arcades are really great for getting the mass public to, to try it out. Because, you know, right. $50 might seem like a lot 
for, you know, just to go to an arcade to play it. But you don't have to spend $50. I, I could have spent as low as 10 or 20 just to try out a game. So I think, you know, I think the writing off arcades is a, is a bad idea for, for VR companies. Okay, you heard it here first, listeners. VR arcades are the next Asia trend that will come to the States and... Whoever gets in early will be big winners. Speaking of Asia trends, we want to talk about uh, a food trend. This was very weird to me. So mm -hmm. everyone out there probably knows about this, the practice of watching people play video games on uh, websites like Twitch. Um, now, apparently, Twitch is working on a new thing where they're going to allow people to watch other people eat. In the same way as they watch people play video games. And, uh, again, this is coming to Twitch. And um, so apparently this was popularized in South Korea. And I may have the pronunciation wrong. You can correct me. It's apparently called mukbang. 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 Yeah. And so wh why don't you explain what this is and where this came from, if you so, know. So mukbang is a portmanteau. It, it's for mugnun, mugnun, which means to eat. And pangsong, which is a broadcast. So it's like an eating broadcast. That's what the, the word means. This was a trend that popped up around, I want to say, 2008 or so. Like, every if you flip on Korean television or Japanese television, every program is about food. And, you know, they'll travel to, like, different places in the world um, for some programs, but also different places in... Uh, Korea or in Japan, rural areas, specialty areas, and they'll just basically, um, you know, go and send famous people there or like pers TV personalities and be like, what, what food do you eat here? Oh, is this the food? Wow, look at this food. I'm just going to eat this food. And it's like a two or three minute segment of people eating the food and just going, oh, this is so delicious. Oh, I'm eating this food. So, you know, around 2008, 2009, I want to say that's when vloggers and YouTubers started getting super duper big. You're talking about South Korean bloggers. Yeah. I, I, I think that the genesis was going from these TV broadcasts where you would see famous people or at least famous TV personalities going off to various locales uh, trying different foods to YouTubers and uh, vloggers basically going, well, you know, they can do it. I can do that too. And having their own channels dedicated to kind of like food and cuisine reviews in a way. So um, that got so big that, you know, uh, around 2012, it was actually a part of the Korean presidential campaigns <laughs> where they would have mukbang, uh, like, events or something like that. And so that trend, uh, because it got so big within the culture, you know, gamers, and Korea is, is a hotbed for PC gaming. StarCraft is, like, the national sport. In Korea, I mean, technically it's Taekwondo, but it's also, um, you know, StarCraft. So these famous gamers in their downtime would just start eating and interacting with people that way. So I think that's why you're seeing it on Twitch now. And they're just like picking up on this trend. Yeah. And, and on Twitch, they're going to be calling it social eating because um, I'm guessing that the Korean wording is maybe a little unwieldy for most Americans since they don't know, you know, what those two words mean. Um, yeah, I, when I was when I lived in Japan, actually, one of my first uh, gigs was 
writing about food, writing about Japanese restaurants. Mm -hmm. And as, you know, as part of like trying to do my job well, I would, you know, go home and I'd turn on Japanese TV and I'd watch the food shows. And the thing I would always notice, and this was hilarious, is that, you know, some chef or some cook would cook something on the show and they would, you know, present it to the host and they would say, oh, you know, try it. And the host would, uh, you know, pick it up to try it. And you know what I'm about to say. Oh, yeah. They would put it in their mouth. And before the host put food to tongue, they would say, <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And so I, so what I learned from that, and Oshi means delicious, yeah. tasty, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, and in Japanese, And so what I learned was, okay, so when I go to these restaurants, even though I'm a reviewer and I'm supposed to be impartial or whatever, when I go to these restaurants and I'm tasting, I need to have my Oshi ready like before I even have processed the taste. So, I mean, yeah, so you're right. That's my experience, too. It's like a huge foodie culture in Japan. Japan and Korea seem to kind of walk hand in hand with a lot of these Mm -hmm. uh, cultural trends. So anyway, so this is so this is most likely a South Korea created thing, uh, mukbang, 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 mm-hmm. um, coming to the U.S. I see. I watched the slow rolling trend. I remember when I first started visiting Japan in 2002, and even then, it was very popular in Japan for people to photograph their food and show it to people, and you know just. They were just so amazed at these, you know, intricate food presentations mm-hmm. and the colors or whatever. And that wasn't really the trend in the States. And then I remember coming back to the States uh, in 2012 and lo and behold, boom, like, the, you know, it was happening in the, in the States as well. So this kind of tracks in terms of like that, you know, like Asia trends, you know, moving slowly over to the West. But I'm just wondering, I mean, do you really think Americans are going to, you know, turn on Twitch and other whatever YouTube live and Facebook live and watch people eat, like watch other Americans eat. It's it's a bit of a stretch. Um, there are mukbang people, like <laughs> mukbang people. Sorry, because it's hard because there's not really a term for them in English. Uh, but there are, are people who have their own mukbang channels and they are speaking in English, so they have hmm. English speaking fans. Already, there are people who are translating Yuki Kinoshita's videos on YouTube into English. So it's not—it's not just you know, Korean, especially Korean and Japanese pop culture. It—it it, you know, they've got these. These are two countries with great soft power in terms of their cultural exports. Um, so I think there are people who are already you know, glomming onto it as as. I, I want to say people who are very interested in Asian pop culture. So they're probably going to be the vanguard of people doing it. I watched a couple of videos and, you know, it's not it's not like too weird, especially if you're a foodie and you want to kind of get a sense of like, oh, what's this new cuisine that I want to try? You're basically seeing a food reviewer. So you have right. um, beauty channel bloggers already and you're just basically right. watching them using products. So, you know, if you think about food in that way, and let's say you want to try something like um, gyutan or takoyaki or some sort of, like, food that you don't get access to in whatever part of America you're in, and you're seeing these people being like, oh, you know, and, and 
maybe you don't want to watch an Asian person say this stuff about their own food, but you want to watch an American who's like, hey, hey guys, I'm in Japan. I'm about to have some takoyaki. Oh, this is like the shape of the takoyaki. Uh, it's very round. And oh, I'm eating it. Oh, it's hot. This is how you should eat it. You know, I think there, there right. actually is. Yeah. Dr- dramatic faces and everything. Yeah. There, you know, and you, and you know, now that I think about it, you have people who go on and like, guys, I'm going to Shake Shack. Shake Shack just released a new burger. I'm going to eat this burger. And, you know, it didn't, it wasn't there a guy. And watch me eat it? (laughs) Yeah. Wasn't there a guy who, um, like, there was a viral video of a dude who went to a Five Guys and he had a burger and he bit into it and he was like, damn, this is a good burger. So, well, I don't know, you know. I don't I don't know about that, but I do know that one of Vice, uh, you know, the website, the magazine, one of Vice's new shows is called Fuck That's Delicious. And I have to admit, I mean, uh, well, basically, it's um, it features like a couple of rappers, well-known rappers who whose names they escape me right now. But um, they basically go around the country and it's not them cooking food. It's just them going to different restaurants and sampling food and, you know, often just actually saying, fuck, that's delicious. And it is pretty fascinating, like watching them kind of like ingest like these different flavors and have the cooks talk about it. So on that, I mean, but but it's presented more in a documentary style mm-hmm. as opposed to kind of like this, you know, one shot, you know, look at my dramatic reactions or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. So I have an idea. I have an idea. So. We went from photographing food, right? Mm-hmm. So that was like the dawn of the smartphone, right? Right. And then cloud technology and streaming got better. So now we have the filming of the eating of the food. Yes? Mm-hmm. Next progression, right? So the next logical step would be what? Cooking. Technology. Toto, the, the largest toilet company, the most technologically advanced toilet company in Japan, <laughs> Toto, I, I hereby propose to this uh, company, if they're listening, if they catch wind of this, this is your opportunity to lead the next iteration of this trend uh, where it's logically going next. Toilet reviews. No? <laughs> no? No, not toilet reviews? I mean, look, I mean, if you, uh, you've you used Japanese toilets, you know how these things are more complicated than most automobiles, right? These things so, are, uh, I have to say, I miss the Japanese magic toilets. Uh, there, if I could bring one home with me, I would. Look, I think I have gold here. I think you know what? I think I need to just bypass Toto, and I need to just maybe get started on this idea myself. I mean, you, you don't yeah. have to buy in, Vic. You know, but I mean, if you want in, I'm giving you an early opportunity. You know, ground floor. I'll, I'll think about it. <laughs> I'll, I'll let it digest. <laughs> okay. Ah, that's pretty good. Let it digest. <laughs> And so moving on, we want to talk about the South Korean zombie apocalypse blockbuster, Train to Busan. And rather than play a trailer um, to kind of prime you for what's going on, I mean, we're just going to dive right in because the trailer is in Korean. The dialogue's in Korean. So mostly you'll just be hearing kind of like bangs and zombie sounds. So that's that's not really helpful. So we're just going to dive right in. Uh, The film was directed by Yoon Sang-ho, and it stars the dashing and the swoon-worthy Gong Yu, who uh, I'm not very familiar with, even though I've seen my fair share of... uh, I I am very familiar with him. I was very happy to see him. Listeners, you you heard the the change in in the tone of her voice, that that, that low register that came in. Uh, And so... Basically, the film tells us the story of 
again, and we're going to try to avoid spoilers because this is still available in theaters here in the U.S. Um, it came out in late July, and um, you can see it. And I would say it's probably at your local indie movie house as opposed to mainstream theaters. Um, and again, it is uh, in subtitles. So it's in Korean with English subtitles. But it basically tells a story of a group of strangers who all board a train. And, you know, in South Korea and in Japan, you know, high speed trains are kind of like a big part of the culture. So it's not kind of this uh, Amtrak kind of like old school thing. It's actually a very modern part of the society. And um, basically a bunch of strangers get on the train and a zombie apocalypse breaks out um, while they're traveling and hijinks ensue. And it's it's a fascinating take on the zombie genre. So we both saw this recently. What did you think, Vic? I enjoyed it quite a bit. I thought it was a better version of Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer was another, and you know, it's funny because Snowpiercer also, I think, has a Korean uh, element to, to it. And I, I forget whether or not it had a Korean director, but there was um, a Korean actor in that Song Kang-ho, who's very famous in um in Korea, I would say he's kind of like a the Korea's Robert De Niro type type of dude, and he was in that film. The director of Snowpiercer was Bong Joon Ho, another really famous guy uh, in Korean cinema. Um, he Snowpiercer was much more of a post-apocalyptic, future-esque type thing. The world has already ended at that point. Uh, Train to Busan is the world currently ending, or at least Korea currently going through a kind of apocalyptic scenario, but I felt this particular film, because maybe it was so close to the uh, era of technology and society that we currently live in, I felt the stakes were higher. It was a lot more realistic in terms of, you know, how modern society would deal with that sort of situation and just watching the film itself. So the film takes place on the KTX, which is the Korea's version of Japan's Shinkansen bullet train. Um, I've been on that train. I know what it's like. So it was, it was, it really kind of hit home for me. Um, so everything you saw was like true to life. There was nothing kind of, uh, messed with. I mean, it looked like the real South Korean train system. Yeah. That's, that's basically what you would see on a KTX train. It's what Japanese Shinkansen look like as well. Um, I mean, slight obvious differences. So, I mean, the thing that really was amazing to me about this film was that when I first saw the trailer, I mean, people have been trying to get my attention about this film, Friends, uh, for some time, and I finally came around to it. Um, I saw the trailer, and I have to admit that I might be spoiled with regard to Asian horror because I'm not a big fan of Japanese horror mm -hmm. films. I think they often get... Uh, the special effects are uh, wrong. I, I'm generally not scared. Uh, I generally think, you know, and I'm specifically speaking about Japanese horror films. I generally think that the makeup and the execution of the horror is pretty silly. And so when I saw the um, the trailer for Road, uh, Train to Busan, I don't know. I caught like faint whiffs. I was like, oh, is this a Japanese style thing? Did they not get it right? But then I had to remind myself, hold on, hold on, hold on. South Korea is actually kicking Japan's ass in terms of film. I mean, they th and this is really weird to me because it's like they're so close and they share so many things culturally, the, the two countries. 
but there is an authenticity and a an emotional impact and just a, a gravity that a lot of South Korean films and I, I think most of, most of my favorite films uh, from South Korea are crime mm-hmm. films, uh, not really not so much science fiction or horror, more, more so crime. They, they just somehow they seem to get the gravity and the import and the human interaction. And actually, I'll even go so far as to say even the cinematography, you know, Japan has this huge reputation, I think, well-deserved as like technologically, you know, far ahead of you know many places. But I don't know, just in terms of the use of the technology, South Korea's cinematography is just stunning. The lighting, the cinematography the acting, it's usually great. And so, so I saw this, the trailer and I was about to write it off. I said, like, wait a minute, this is South Korea. Maybe it's different. And thank God, I, you know, thank God I gave it a try because it, it is different. Um, I believe it, you know, as much as you can believe a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> it's really hard now, at this point in the zombie genre, you know, cinema landscape. It's really hard to do anything new. And I think they did a few things new that was, uh, that you know, pretty cool. For instance, um, did you notice how, like, uh, when, like, the zombie, with, with either someone turns or someone, like, a zombie has fallen down, how they get up? Yeah. Did you notice, like, this? The, they, there's, like, a very ballet kind of, like, like they're being pulled by a string. And it, it actually seemed more realistic than what we see in other zombie films because I thought, okay, if you were kind of just, like, possessed by this virus that you have no control over in terms of, you know, body control and your mind's not thinking, yeah, your body would just jerk up. And, and I think that they, that was like a great kind of, it's like a tiny point, but I thought it worked really well. Well, another thing that they did really well was when, you know, cause you're getting mauled by these zombies. So when you reanimate, basically what was really interesting was a lot of times, um, I believe there's a young high school baseball player who gets like mauled to death, and then when he comes and reanimates, he, his his he looks like a broken marionette doll when he's running. His his arm is at a really bizarre broken angle, and he's still running and he's shuffling along, and just some of the the body positions uh, of these train zombies were just insane. In in the fact that they were like, oh yeah, you know, they have lasting damage done to them. Sometimes when you watch a zombie movie, they're they're still very much like in a human shape. There was another part where um, they had the the zombies coming out of uh, a helicopter, like like rain, like raining down, and then like jumping up. There's a part where one zombie grabs on to a train that's trying to get away. And then the rest of the zombies jump on that zombie. And then it becomes this giant, almost like ants. And so many zombies pile onto this one zombie holding the train back. The train begins to slow down. I mean, these these are some like really inventive little things that happen. I mean, I don't know. Again, I think I'm spoiled with bad Japanese horror films because... You know, a lot of the films will just kind of rely on the tropes of, oh, it's a vampire film. Oh, it's a zombie film. We'll just, oh, it's a virus. Oh, a parasite. Uh, No, this is the the thing that really drove me. And I don't have her name, but the the daughter, the Mm -hmm. tiny little daughter of the um, broke my heart. I mean, she's amazing. Like, give that girl more work. Give her more work. The acting in this film is great. Oh, the coward, the coward Uh, guy. The CEO, the old guy. This guy was amazing. He was amazing. I've never hated a character so much. I mean, he, he was amazing. 
I mean, yeah, so that was like they really got the human interactions right. But I want to go back to something you said earlier that I think really kind of uh, makes this a uniquely South Korean film. And that's the use of the smartphones in like woven into the fabric of the film. They actually use the smartphones at one point at a couple of points as uh, a tool mm-hmm. to fight the zombies. And I'm not going to give away exactly what they do, but I thought that was an incredibly, you know, Asia slash South Korean way to handle kind of like a modern horror, you know, situation. Yeah. And it's, it's funny because um, at one point a ringtone plays into it. And that particular ringtone is, I guess, the Korean version of the USA champ. So it was, it was really funny because it's just, it's just played off as a part of Korean culture that the smartphone would come into it at all at all times. And one of the things that I liked was that the mode of communication between the characters who are in different parts of the train was primarily through cell phone use and um, not just phone calls. Like, they weren't even bothering with phone calls. They were just going straight with the texting. Or at least the two the two teenagers who are who are trying to the, communicate with each other, they're just like straight up texting. They're not even bothering with calling each other. So I thought that was that was a nice touch, given how uh, I mean, if you think people in America only text. Oh no, yeah, yeah, no. Asia is a whole different thing. A whole yeah. different level. Um, did you notice this? I felt like this was a huge hole. The the tough guy. I mean, I'm reducing these to name to characteristics because I don't really feel like they say their names to each other very much. So I didn't really remember the names. But the tough guy, you know who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's there's the tough guy. He's like punching out zombies. And I'm sorry, as far as I know, zombies don't get punched unconscious. So like that kind of like I felt like that was like a huge hole. I'm like, okay, you're tough, badass. Okay, go go Korea. You're awesome, but. No, you don't knock out zombies. So that kind of that didn't really make sense. I mean, a couple of times he snapped the neck and that kind of made more sense. The the whole kind of turning and you kind of still have some consciousness as you're turning. That was very cool. I mean, you know, all in all, this is like um, I think this is something that American audiences would like. And, you know, beyond just like the kind of entertainment value, I thought that you know, again, like on a modern level in terms of integrating technology with horror, I do think, yeah, you know, how do they first find out? They find out through a video feed as they're all like, you know, just kind of watching and riding the train. I mean, this, it all, like you said, this is, this seems like this is how it might happen if you were actually in transit. In Asia, because let's, let's be clear. If you're on Amtrak, you did. There's no way that slow train <laughs> can save you. Right, so right. this is another reason why we need high speed high speed railways in America, so that if a zombie outbreak happens, you stand a chance of surviving on a train that's going at 300 miles per hour, as opposed to a train that moves at the speed of nothing. I've done a little bit of research into the history of Japanese boogeymen and monsters, and I have a sense of why... there's not much zombie lore in uh, Japanese culture. Do you have a sense of why there, there have been not that many zombie films from South Korea? You know, not really. I think zombie or like the, the embrace of zombie culture now in South Korea comes a lot from bleed over from American culture. Zombies are not, as far as my 
you know, second generation Korean American knowledge of folklore goes, there's there aren't really zombies in our traditional like you know, in our traditional mythology. But ghosts are a thing, so that's why you would like most Asian horror deals with ghosts on a certain level. Like ghosts right. are very steeply yeah. um, you know, it's very steeped in, in the culture. But zombies zombies are new, but I like that we're I like that there's this uh, cross-pollination between Asian and uh, Western pop culture in that, you know, Korean movies are deeply influencing Hollywood right now um, and that they're also taking the zombie influence from the U.S. and kind of taking it to Korea and, you know, remixing it and then putting it back out. And it's amazing that it's getting a wide, not a wide release, but it's amazing that it's getting a release, a theatrical release. Um, it turns out that the director of Train to Busan is actually the director of an earlier film called Soul Station, which is basically the same kind of story. It's a story of uh, just a ragtag group of strangers who are basically caught in the middle of a zombie apocalypse. And that's Soul Station, Soul as in Seoul, Korea. Um, and so, I mean, that's animated. Yeah, it's a prequel to Train to Busan. So apparently the director of Pr- Train to Busan is like most of his uh, credentials appear to be, at least from what I can see, appear to be in the world of animation. So this was like a, a nice transition for him into live action. And um, I think he did a great job. Um, I, I think this is one of those few horror films where I actually think I need to watch this again just to pull in a, a few more details. That is Train to Busan. Give it a check. It is, I think, possibly one of the better attempts to show you what horror might be like uh, or horror scenario might be like in the modern age with modern technology done well. And with that, we're going to call an end to this episode of the Mars Magazine podcast. Uh, You're on your way back to the States, yes? Or are you just going to stay over there? I'm on my way back. Trust me. I'm on my way back. (laughs) You're not going to, like, set up, like, a food-eating mukbang uh, Uh, video network or something? Well, considering that the sushi may still be irradiated over here from the nuclear meltdown, I think I'll be back. I think I'll be back. All right, so that government of Japan sponsorship just went out of the window. And with that, (laughs) we will call an end to this episode of the Mars Magazine podcast. This has been Adario Strange here with Big Song. And we will see you in the future.